I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. Once again, it's time for another episode of Metal Matters. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening and sharing. I can see the numbers. I can see you guys sharing, and it means a lot. Thank you very much, and I hope you guys are enjoying this. This week, Jonah Jenkins joins us to talk about prone mortal form the debut record of Only Living Witness. If you were in the New England area in the late 80s and early 90s, Witness is one of those bands that you were seeing playing these gigantic shows. They were one of the more influential bands at the time, and they were harbingers of a new sound that was sort of uh, developing in the hardcore scene. They brought in this new sound and uh, are definitely one of the bands that were on the cutting edge around that time. I wanted to get this episode out to you guys because there's some activity with Milltown, one of Jonah's post-Only Living Witness bands, and I uh, wanted to get this out to you guys, so here we go. So the band formed in 1989 in Boston, and uh, it was former members of the band, the thrash band Formicide, and um, Pro Mortal Form came out on Century Media May 21st, 1993. It's 35 minutes and 27 seconds long, which is, uh, that's an interesting point because lately records like full length LPs are like 70 minutes long these days. And, uh, pro mortal form is definitely of that era, uh, IE Slayer and bands like that, that put out the 35 minute records. That was on purpose. Definitely. Yeah. So in the beginning of the band, well, first of all, Only Living Witness is a very influential band, especially in New England. And uh, when I think of Only Living Witness, I think of Sam Black Church as being two bands that did not sound very much like hardcore music in the late 80s. I mean, the band formed in 89. And uh, leading up to that, in Boston at least, you had Wrecking Crew, Slapshot, uh, Gangrene, Eye for an Eye, uh, you know, bands like that. And then uh, only only living witness sort of comes on the scene with a completely different sound, and uh, mm-hmm. I just like to talk about that, like what you know, what sort of um, angle you guys were coming at to make to make the band sound so different. Yeah, well, I had been doing a fanzine with some friends for a while. Uh, you know, we were just kind of uh, writing and uh, reviewing, writing about and reviewing music that you know maybe started from heavy the heavier perspective um hardcore punk rock uh uh metal uh, very early black metal um you know grindcore power violence that kind of stuff um and then you would always throw in other kinds of music in there uh because we didn't have very limited tastes you know our we would always have top 10 lists that included sade usually you know along with pole thrower stark weather um winter um you know, we really uh, had quite broad tastes 
you know, we would, we would talk about Joe Jackson in the same sentence. We'd be talking about Slayer. So we didn't feel like we needed to limit our um, content. So we called it Look Again, which, which was the, the whole idea was, um, you know, take another look at what you, what you might have as a prejudice against this music because it's, it's probably got some merit, you know, if someone bothered to release this thing. I thought that everything that was getting released was good, but at least there's something that you might find that you like about it. And we're, we're trying to present the things that are kind of across the whole spectrum so that you can gain some knowledge about where music is in the world, not just um, what your microcosm, your subculture, your, you know, myopic um, worldview is, is telling you. So uh, I had been a fan of former side since I was in high school, went to go see him and met them. They were really cool. And, you know, we started the fanzine just as high school was ending for me. And, you know, I, I sang in a band that never really did anything. Um, and that was just a couple of shows, but, um, we did a, a, a demo and the former side guys had heard that and they wanted to change their direction from the straight up thrash metal to more stripped down, um, e-trope, uh, um, leeway, um, uh, you know, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of bands. I got Brad Lopier, Holy Terror, uh, obviously Slayer, but those were the initial bands we started talking about when, um, uh, only the witness started to form. Um, it was basically me with the, the former side guys. And, and, uh, we specifically said that, you know, that a lot of the riffs were, were working really well, but they didn't want to have, um, like a, a guy hitting those Dio type notes on the, on the recordings. I mean, the guy could sing his ass off. Steve Pooch is an incredible vocalist. Um, but they, they wanted something more, more straightforward and I could bark pretty well. So I, I just kind of barked along with it. Um, and so we were still in that sort of thrash vein for quite a while. And those are the first shows we played in Boston hardcore. Uh, Sean McNally helped us to get, uh, shows, um, Tim Katz, who used to be in Seca, he helped us to get some shows and, you know, we started playing the channel and the rat and, and playing hardcore shows. And even though we weren't really a hardcore band at all, the hardcore scene is what I had been a part of since whatever, 84, 85, um, just as a little kid, you know, going to shows. And, um, it, it was a logical place for me because I had contacts from the fanzine to try and, you know, ask for shows and bring shows together and kind of create eclectic shows that I wanted to see. Um, you know, when I, when we heard Sandlot Church demo, um, I, I was just blown and I got it through a uh, friend, John Sandler, who I was doing the fanzine with. And we started writing about them because we, they just, you know, cases stuff. So, um, we would, and book shows, uh, witness shows, uh, with bands that we thought might kind of push, push boundaries for people. And it, it kind of worked out pretty well, uh, especially with Sean McNally helping us out with, uh, getting bigger rooms and bringing bigger, uh, bigger shows together. One of the best shows that uh, John Sandler and I booked was, um, it was Sabrat Church. Um, only the witness STP, uh, over and out. Um, I forget who else was on that show, but it was really good. And that was a fun ready show and, uh, definitely cut across a bunch of different lines that people did not expect. Um, it was, uh, a stark way to play that show too. Um, people hadn't seen that really heavy, uh, I guess more metal or more thrash or whatever you want to call it or doom style of Starkweather, especially. Um, and then Sam and Church were, were kind of off the map. People didn't know what to make of them being almost like a grand cool band with like an HR type singer. Um, so witness fit into that little thing pretty well. And then we kind of, you know, got better shows from there it was uh, kind of ground powerful when we started getting really good shows. 
What was your background as a vocalist? Because that's really one of the most impressive things about the band, I think, is um, just the, the vocal range you have. And, uh, you know, so did you, did you actually study anything? Like, did you have uh, any formal training in singing? Around the time that uh, Only the Witness um, uh, got together, we, we liked a lot of different kinds of music. We liked um, melodic music. We, liked, we always talked about Sabbath, and we always talked about uh, the Beatles and stuff like that, but we, we weren't playing music that really could accommodate that when, when we were still a thrash band. You know, um, Witness uh, started out with basically the thrash band with me on vocals, but I was barking a lot. And um, as we started to write a little bit more melodic music, uh, that changed our uh, writing style uh, enough that we actually changed out our bass player and our guitar player. Um, and then uh, we started tuning down and it got a little bit more melodic in general um, because we were slowing down as well. And I was able to um, experiment a little bit more. And uh, I think that tuning down gave me a chance to, to sing high without having to be in that you know standard E tuning where I had to sing way higher. Um, and we would tune down to whatever drop D and, and uh, C, and uh, it, it was easier to, for me to hit some notes in there. And then I could uh, uh, relax a little bit more. I, did, I wasn't having to just yell and scream all the time to be heard. Um, that there was some space in the music and I could uh, uh, sing out a little bit more. So that's really what led to it. Um, I had been singing along to records for a long time. I liked, you know, a lot of melodic uh, hardcore and punk rock, um, Bad Brains, uh, Straw Dogs, Misfits, you know, FUs. Um, those were definitely the ones that got me to understand that it can be melodic, even Fear, you know. I mean, people, these are all bands with really great vocals. Um, and I, and I, I wanted to sing along to them and I wanted to write music that, that had, that captured some of that, uh, energy, but still was melodic and catchy. Yeah, it's funny that when you mentioned the tuning, um, aspect of being in tune when you sing, because, uh, I'd experienced something similar to that when, um, confronted with covering a Danzig song or a Samhain song with my own band, Tombs, we covered Mother of Mercy and, uh, we tried to do it in, the, the standard tuning that Sam Hain rec recorded it in, uh, there was no possible way for me to hit those high notes. So we, we tuned it down to C, and I'm like, oh, suddenly I can sing this thing, and I sound okay there now. There you go. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> funny. It's difference. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that when they when they listen along to, to records, like, you know, like Sabbath records. I mean, Sabbath were tuning down pretty much ever since their whatever um, uh, Master Reality and, you know, definitely volume four there, there's some really low tunings in those records and Ozzy sounds great but you know in the standard tuning it doesn't sound as great uh same thing with sound sound garden they haven't they they hadn't played in e since what 1987 i mean Chris he's a hell of a vocalist but he certainly sounds better when he can kind of sing along to this detuned uh you know more open and slow music than when he's singing along just when it's in the same tuning as Elvis Costello so who was um there were some member changes in the beginning of the band until when you guys recorded uh, Prone uh, Mortal Form. So what was, the, what was the, the two lineups that actually were involved in the band, like from the beginning, the demos? And, yeah. The, the first lineup was uh, Eric Stevenson on drums, me on vocals, um, Roy Costa on bass, and Kevin Stevenson on guitar. Um, Kevin and Eric were brothers, and um, all three of those guys were the original lineup for Formicide. Um, the next lineup was uh, me and Eric, and um, the uh, guitar player is Craig Silverman, and the bass player, uh, Chris Crowley. And um, both of them were from other local metal bands, and um, they you know, 
we recognized that they were incredible players and we wanted to see how it would work. So when we first started practicing, we, we played some of the songs that, uh, that we had written with uh, Roy and Kevin. We played you know, not all of them, but, but many of them. And, and it worked because they could play the faster, thrashier stuff, but they also uh, brought something new to the uh, slower uh, and more uh, detuned and, and open songs. You know, it's funny, back in the early 90s, um, I mean, I, I moved to Boston and I think it was 93 or 94, somewhere along that line, where a lot of bands that were from the hardcore scene seemed to be in love with, like, rock music again, you know what I mean? And um, yeah. and it was this, this sort of era of bands, like, around that time. Like, even bands that had existed in the, in the 80s, once it became mm-hmm. 1990, 91, suddenly... They were introducing more metal, a little bit more, you know, sort of, um, you know, melodic singing, and the tempos were dropping mm-hmm. a little bit, and the tunings were dropping, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yep. So, I mean, in a way, I feel like, I mean, just as a pure outsider, because I didn't grow up in Boston, and I didn't, I wasn't, I was there for a little bit during the '80s in, in college, but um, I kind of felt like Witness was like a harbinger of that style of music. I feel like, um, <laughs> you know, seriously, I mean, you know. Some of the funnest builds I've ever seen were you guys and Sam Black Church, like two bands mm-hmm. that are sound completely different. Yet yeah. you guys, I feel like SBC and you guys played quite a bit. We did. We're, we're pretty good friends, and we tried to help each other as much as possible. Yeah, and then Sean Cringe was like a huge. Um, Sean Sean McNally was a huge uh, figure back then too. I mean, he was bo- yep. booking shows, like he managed Sam Black Church, I think. And was he involved with, uh, Only Live a Witness as well on a management level or? No, he didn't, he didn't manage us, but he definitely helped us out. I mean, I, I gave him the Sam Black Church demo. I was, the, he, was he hadn't heard them before I gave that to him. We played a show of his, uh, at Green Street Station. Um, and I think, you know, 11 people showed up, but we got paid like 11 bucks and, and, uh, I was like, thank you very much for the show. I really appreciate it. But you really got to hear this band. And I gave him my copy of Sam Black Church Jet Metal demo. And he was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. And then, you know, fast forward, you know, a few few shows and he's booking them at Green Street. And then things went well. And then uh, I think Mark McKay was at the same show that I was at that where it was Sam Black Church playing to like, you know, I think maybe Steve Malone was there and maybe four other people, including me and Mark McKay and, and Sean. And, um, they quickly, uh, you know, Mark McKay offered to put out a seven inch for them on the same label where he had put out that Wrecking Crew seven inch, um, uh, I think, uh, Grinding Halt, is that what it was? Um, I, and, uh, basically the, the, it snowballed from there because we, we always put a play together. We were, you know, we were basically friends as well as, you know, fans of each other and, um, it worked, you know, worked really well for a really long time. Now, uh, the relationship with Century Media, I, I got to be, be honest with you, Only the Witness yep. was the first band I'd ever heard. Uh, like, you guys being signed to Century Media is what made me aware of what Century Media was as a label, and now they're this, you know, you know sort of mega label these days. So, a, a primarily European label, how did they, how did Witness get on the radio, radar of, uh, of uh, Century Media? So, uh, I think that, um, you know, we had, we had a, a lawyer, uh, I think at the time that, that, um, was not in music business. So I know that we, we didn't have any management. Um, we didn't have anyone really, uh, uh, helping us out. The only thing that I could think of is maybe they got a copy of a look again, where we had a witness interview in there. And then they, they maybe found it through tape trading, but, because I didn't send them anything. 
um, I think we sent something to Maze because like Biohazard was signed to Maze and I think they were looking at, at Wrecking Crew. But we didn't send it out to, to many labels at all. I think we sent it to, to Roadrunner because Formerside had sent some music to Roadrunner. Um, and uh, uh, we had some, some contacts in common, but I, I have no idea how they actually got it. But I got a phone call from them, uh, from Robert, and, and he was like, hey, you know, we're a label out of Germany. We have about uh, 10 releases, I think he said, something like that. And uh, he knew that I liked death metal. And uh, so we started talking about music, and, and I was, you know, totally into a lot of that early Central Media stuff. Uh, I, I really didn't even know their history. I didn't know who Oliver was. I didn't know anything about uh, their their whole MO. Um, so it, it ended up, you know, in the long run working out for the best because we were able to tour Europe a couple times, and that was awesome. Um, but we definitely didn't fit on the label, especially back when they were almost entirely death metal. Yeah. Um, and then when we... Tr- when we tried to like um, uh, move away from the label, they they held on to us really tightly, and, and that's that had a lot to do with the band breaking up. But uh, there were other factors as well. But the, the 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 record label was both a huge facilitator for us and gave us a chance to tour. Um, we didn't really tour at all in the U.S. because mainly because they didn't want us to. Um, well, they wanted us to sign away our merch in the U.S. And because we didn't sign away our merch in the U.S., they refused to give us tour support in the U.S. Wow. Um, but we did. Yeah, but we did sign up, sign away our merch in, in Europe, so they were like, "Yeah, sure, come on over and you know, tour, and we'll sell your merch." So. Damn, that's uh, I, you know, I was that was going to be a question I had because I know that, or my understanding was that Only Living Witness didn't really tour extensively in the United States, and I guess that's the reason why. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we we made a video and everything on our own, and they wouldn't even pay us for that. They were wow. like, "Nah, just just give us." You know, and it, it was three hundred dollars. <laughs> <So, laughs> It was, it was weird, you know, because they they held on to us so tightly and, and wanted so much money for us for us to leave to be on another label. When all we wanted to do is just continue and and, and even have uh, pretty modest budgets. We recorded the first record for ten grand. Second second record was thirty five grand, and that included buying gear. Um, so it's like compared to nowadays, where I mean, and, and this is you know when for Apache was I think a thousand dollars a day or fifteen hundred dollars a day, something like that. Yeah. Um, so we weren't exactly, uh, those weren't exactly big budgets, especially for, for, you know, two inch tape recording. Um, and it, it certainly, um, we signed too soon, <laughs> you know, we signed in 92 and I think that was the same year that Nirvana broke. And if we had waited, you know, maybe six months to eight months, we probably would have had, you know, better offers even from, uh, other, other labels because we, we easily sold, uh, 500 copies of our first demo. And I think when our when our first album came out, we sold maybe two thousand copies. And and once we sold those two thousand copies, Intermedia was like, okay, that's enough. Uh, give us another record now. And that was like three months later. Wow. So yeah, it was it was like really weird uh, interactions because I think they were just used to the underground selling the records for you. They didn't have any any concept of promotion really. Uh, and certainly tape trading gave them all that you know unleashed grave all those bands board off. Those were those were selling because people knew the demos and people were doing tape trading and stuff. Um, wasn't because of some massive uh, promotional machine yet. Although I will, I will give huge credit to um, Paula and Eula um, from Century Media, who, who made it their personal, you know, uh, mission to to promote Witness. They really worked hard for us, and, and a lot of people at Century Media, especially in the in the smaller U.S. office when they were in New York, they have worked really hard to get. Um, witness onto the radio and that that definitely helped but you know without touring it wasn't going to be much more than that and they definitely didn't do any paper uh, uh 
like magazine, like zine um, advertising. So there wasn't really much uh, way to get any, any traction about touring. So we really toured in the Northeast. We The farthest north we went was Montreal. Farthest south was Philly. And the farthest west we went was Albany. Wow. Yeah. Did um did you guys have desires to tour the whole states? It, it would have been cool, uh, I think, especially if we did it uh, when everyone was energized. But uh, Eric had a lot of um, physical health problems, and it was uh, not easy for him to tour, and he, he didn't really like touring. So it was also a challenge within the band. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, can't, I can't blame him for that. Definitely was not uh, easy for him physically to tour. So uh, it, it just it, it, didn't, it didn't help the situation. If we had been super motivated and, and wanted to go and do like the guys in Tree did and Sam Black Church did and just pick up and go tour on our own, we definitely uh, could have done that. It would have been a significant challenge for, for Eric physically. Related to, uh, well, actually unrelated, how did you meet Will Tarrant, our mutual friend Will, who ran Chainsaw Safety Records, and he put out one of your seven inches? Yeah. How did you guys meet? Yeah, well, uh, he was good friends with Eric, uh, and he, he introduced uh, Will to me. Will, Will came to see us um, at our first show in Worcester. I think we played with Only Time. But uh, incidentally, uh, Will and I started, started uh, talking because of the zine stuff. You know, he did a fanzine a long time ago. Uh, I, when I was doing a fan scene, we would, we would trade, uh, you know, tapes and trade records and stuff. And he actually is the person who named Only Living Witness. He came up with that name. Really? Yeah. Hmm. That's pretty, pretty interesting actually. Cause uh, how, what was his, uh, how did he come up with the name? Like, what's the story behind that? Uh, I'm pretty sure he read the Ted Bundy book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's, the name of, it's the name of the Ted, Ted Bundy book. And, uh, it was just kind of, uh, you know, unique at the time. Not a lot of people are using, you know, the three words that, uh, were, have now turned into three totally disconnected words often but uh it kind of made sense for for the style of music that we're doing uh our first songs was was about the zodiac killer so there's a slight relationship there you know and also as a result we ended up uh, connecting with the starkweather people because of the name right uh but uh it it, it, you know we weren't all about serial killers or anything like that but it was it's just a it it flowed and it was unique at the time if i remember correctly that early 90s period late 80s, early 90s, uh, there there was a serial killer fascination. There was like this mm-hmm. kind of underground, you know, you, you had uh, Answer Me, you had, you know, all these different sort of underground magazines and publications, and I felt like true yep. crime was like sort of coming into uh, this very sort of hip sort of place, you know, with like younger people, um, bands, music, that sort of thing. Charles Manson, you know, Ted Bundy, Charles Starkweather, all yep. this sort of stuff coming together. And uh, damn, you know something? You mentioned um, Starkweather. It blows my mind sometimes how long that band has been around and they're still operating. I know. It's amazing. And still good. <laughs> yeah, it's for the for the best. I think the world needs a band like Starkweather for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The recording of the record, where where did, did you record it, Fort Apache? We did. The first one was Fort Apache. Yeah, okay. Who was the producer on that record? Tim O'Hare. Yeah, the, and Tim O'Hare is uh, at, put out a, worked on a bunch of records around that time, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, hugely um, influential to us, and uh, a, a big help in the recording of the album was also uh, Carl Plaster. He, he he was the drum engineer, and he yes. he had lots and lots of suggestions for us and helped us to to make Eric's drums sound as huge as they did. Um, and, and also, you know, he, he understood the music, great, uh, presence in the studio. So we were very lucky to work with him as well. 
Yeah, Carl Plaster was kind of a big figure in Boston around that time. Like, you know, he was, uh, he had his, he played a part in a lot of great recordings that were coming out of Fort Apache, in my opinion, you know, and he also uh, would, would engineer, you know, pipeline sessions and things like that. You know what I mean? Every now and then he'd pop up. And um, I feel like in that period of time, there was a lot of really good music coming out of Boston. So what mm-hmm. were, the, were what were some of the other bands and artists that you were you appreciated from that time? Well, I really loved the first uh, Seika record. I thought it was badass. The, and the demos those were those were just incredible songs. Um, the the very early Maelstrom stuff, I loved it. It really blew my mind. Um, I liked Eye for an Eye. It was good, but I really preferred La Gratona. That was more towards the end of Witness, but uh, I mean, we were, we were playing together at the same time. Uh, I really enjoyed Honky Ball, um, and I put out their first 7-inch. Um, the I love Castor and Hike. Um, I released 7-inch by them as well. Um, I actually loved Otis. I thought that was awesome. It was like, again, like uh, in a an aggro you know, rock and roll style, but noisy and, and interesting. That's, that's what really, you know, I was looking for. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I'm not familiar. Like, I'm not familiar with that band. So uh, I have to look them up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, uh, I definitely was a fan of um, kind of the, the, the early Austin rock thing that was happening, like the, the, the roadside people and the um, eight ball shifter people and blood letter and, um, the noisier stuff like Spore. I mean, Blood Letter was really noisy as well. Um, that stuff was was always um, interesting to me. And I remember talking to Ale back then, just being like, "Wow, I like what you're doing with, with this record label." It was reproductive at the time. And uh, so I, I always had a, a fascination with that really noisy stuff. Um, I think later on, you know, like Juno and Neptune was happening. Um, I liked Bright a lot. Um, it, it was. It was kind of all over the place, and that's what I loved. It was in that in that era, you were really able to put something out, put out a single, and, and break up, and then do something else right after. It. And, and your momentum will carry you. It wasn't a big wasn't a big challenge. Um, like the guy, the folks in Ambulance Driver. I'm not even sure what happened to most of them, but I love that record. Um, and it was uh, really cool to have a show like oh, another band, Hullabaloo, right? Uh, Hullabaloo oh yeah, played yeah. With Austin, see. yeah. We played with them and Sega at the Paradise. You know, there's no one there for us. Hall Blue came on. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of people, and it was like, "Wow, what's this weird, you know, uh, rock and roll but butthole surfery band doing a cover of Back in Black with the trumpet? What the fuck? It was great. Like, I, I didn't understand uh, where they came from, but I loved it. Um, the thing you mentioned before about sort of that uh, rock and roll uh, music coming back into uh, almost like the, the aggressive music scene. It definitely started, you know, mid '80s when when bands like SSD and DYS decided to put out rock records. Yeah, how they rock. Kind of yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, ACDC types type stuff, and I didn't like that stuff as much. Um, I remember going to see. Uh, um, I think I was, I was supposed to see uh, CLC and Dag Nasty at NFF being cancerous growth in the Freeze, and I was a huge Freeze fan but I always liked the way the freeze were kind of melodic. They weren't a rock and roll band back then, but they definitely were melodic. And, you know, I had, I had really appreciated their, um, their early stuff, the, you know, Jerry's kids stuff. Um, they, they, they didn't ever really go rock, but they definitely got noisier and slowed down a little bit. Um, I, I think, I, I think that eighties, well, it's also F used to, to odds, right? That was another big uh, change. Um, 
but that definitely was an influence to me. So I, I probably was, uh, by the time we got to that era that we're talking about, early 90s, uh, early to mid-90s, I was either you know, subconsciously or even consciously uh, influenced by that changeover. And I knew that it, I knew that it could be done because I had seen so many good bands do it well. I knew that it could be done poorly, and I, I wanted to avoid that as well. But uh, Bolt of Volta also was another band. Like they, they started out pretty much rock and roll, but badass, noisy, fucked up rock and roll, and that's what... I feel like Bull of Volta, man. Like I still listen to that to the gift on the regular, man. That's that's an incredible album, and and even Swan Dive has got some good tracks on it too. And uh, it does, yeah. So anyone out there who Bull of Volta is not in your everyday vernacular, look them up. There are they have videos on YouTube. Uh, you can get their music on Apple Music if you want to try it out. And if uh, you're a fan of aggressive music with um you know, a lot of melody, but also a lot of aggression and heavy duty guitar rock, like definitely check them out, man. Yep. Agreed. And La Gratona too, man. That's, um, I mean, I think you and I are probably the two biggest La Gratona fans on the planet earth. And, uh, yeah, I think so. and more people should listen to that band as well. And, and that was a band that was way ahead of their time, I think, or, or maybe behind their time a little bit too. I don't know. Like it's hard to say. <laughs> They're either too yeah, early or too funny, late. <laughs> that's a funny trajectory too, right? Because uh, Slaughter Shack, which is uh, where uh, Colin came from, I feel like Slaughter Shack was ahead of their time, but they didn't quite have the the catchy songs that they might have needed to, to break through anywhere. You know, they were playing a lot of shows with like White Zombie back yeah. then, and even like even White Zombie's early stuff is really just kind of noisy, uh, all over the place, but but still cool sounding. Um, and then of course they changed their style completely, but. Um, Slaughter Shack was a little bit more straightforward, but still super noisy. And, and with Colin's brutal vocals, I think some people got it. You know, they had a little bit of success, but they didn't quite have that mass appeal. And with La Gratona, I feel like the songs were there. They really had awesome songs, even though it wasn't necessarily more melodic. He was screaming even more than Slaughter Shack. And the, the guitars were all over the place as far as like cool, almost Jesus Lizard style, um, you know, weird scales and stuff. Um, the, the rhythm section was super badass. Um, again, just aggro, but, but interesting. Um, and I think Taz <laughs> was definitely one of the best drummers to come out of Boston ever. And, and that Lagertona record, the first Lagertona, uh, full length showcases it really well because in his words, I think he, he never wanted to play the same beat in a row twice. So he really kept things interesting and, and because people could keep up with him. And then we, there was almost like a percussive vocalist. It was like, nothing I'd heard before, uh, you know, the closest thing might've been some Jesus lizard or some, um, Latin hyenas or, you know, even negative approach type stuff, but they Tone brought it together in a, in a new, unique way for me. Yeah. It's funny. I remember seeing the guys in slaughter shack around Alston before actually hearing the band. Like I'd seen, mm -hmm. um, John queen in around and Colin mm -hmm. at the comic book store, the new England comic shop over there in, uh, on mm -hmm. Alston. And I'm like, man, yep. these guys look fucking cool, man. Like, you know, just like really cool looking guys, you know. And I'm like, they must be in a band, you know. And I found out that they're yep. in this band called Slaughter Shack. And then uh, yep. I went to go check them out. And then years later, I moved away from Boston and I came back and I went to Bill's Bar. And La Gratona was playing, but they were called Suicide King at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw them on stage. And I'm like, wait, this guy sounds just like that dude from that band, Slaughter Shack. <laughs> And then it all yeah. sort of came together, you know. Right. 
And at that uh, comic shop, I'm pretty sure Bob Mayo from Wargasm worked. Uh, I'm pretty sure he worked there. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely another, right. Yeah, another of my favorite bands from around here, which I haven't mentioned yet. Like that, that first Wargasm album is just mind-blowingly good. Super catchy, but super uh, energized. And the, the, the technicality is there, but the the caveman-ness is there, too. Um, they were just channeling Tank, and I didn't even know who Tank was when I heard that Wargasm record. But now I listen to Tank, and I go, okay, I see where it came from. Yeah. But they, you know, they still were unique in their own in their own right, and and incredibly catchy, but still technical and and memorable lyrics. Um, really interesting band overall, especially for a three piece. Unbelievable. When I talk to other people in bands, and uh, they think about their their back catalog and their past work and their different releases and whatnot, and um, can you listen to? only living witness records and and be satisfied with it like do you because i know a lot of a lot of musicians find fault where there where there might not be yeah. any fault sometimes like they might listen to it and they're like <laughs> okay well there's like i was at a key a little bit here i hit this this cue like a little bit late now how, how do you or can you at all enjoy any of this old music especially since it came out like you know so long ago do you have a different perspective on it these days I put it on and I, I kind of cringe, but I can I can understand why other people enjoy it. I definitely enjoyed it, uh, or I wouldn't have done it back then. You know, um, I don't listen to it as much as I did obviously back then. But sometimes I'll put on, uh, especially the second record, where I feel like we're a little bit more mature songwriters, and I'll really enjoy it. The first record, I, I like the songs, but I can hear so many parts that are um, kind of naive and and uh, overwrought. Um, maybe the song goes on a little too long. We definitely shouldn't have had that guitar solo, that kind of thing. Um, I feel like the second record, we, we got to a point where we were putting songs together that were much more interesting. I had a better time singing them. I was more relaxed. I was more loose, and I can hear that in my own voice. So that was um, that's easier for me to digest nowadays than hearing, you know, basically 21-year-old Jonah Jenkins uh, yelling when he probably should have been relaxed and, and, and getting more into the music. Um, it's it's never easy to go back and listen to things, you know, 25 27 years later yeah definitely. Uh, and I, <laughs> I i feel like uh i i i'd rather listen to other people's music and uh it, that that's not because i'm embarrassed or anything like that it's just like it, it's like hearing yourself talk you know you know conversation where you hear something recorded on a you know a phone call or something like that i, I know i'm going to listen back to this this phone call and go oh god i sound like that yeah, it's a weird subjectivity that happens, and it's, I don't know, everyone has a different answer to that question. I, it's like, I can't bear to listen to anything that I play on or have anything to do with, so, because I can hear every little mistake I ever made, and it's unlistenable to me. But, uh, but yeah, it's good that, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing that people that make music have, that can, their, their relationship yeah. with their art, you know, is very interesting. Right. You know. Definitely. I mean, I, I'm sure that there are people that make music, you know, 50 50 years ago that listened to it and they go, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm still happy with that. No problem. Cause it was a very different kind of music. Uh, if you're yeah. talking about someone who wrote a rocket rockabilly song or a blues song or an early rock and roll song, you know, that's, I mean, that's what it was. It was just perfect. You know, they, they had this vision, it just happened and then it was captured very quickly and, and organically. Um, sometimes I, what I hear on recordings from the nineties is like that super echoey snare and, you know, a lot of over-processing, and uh, I really don't like that part of it either, never mind my own performances. Recently, there's been some announcements of um, Milltown shows, 
and um, you were yeah. the vocalist in that band. And that was uh, a very, um, let's see, what's a good, good way to describe Milltown? Uh, kind of an unlikely grouping of people, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah. how, how did that whole band uh, sort of form? So I had started uh, to look around for people to play with um, immediately after Witness broke up. Um, I was approached by Jake from Castor and Hike about potentially doing something with um, this guy, Brian McKernan. And um, uh, I met Brian. We talked about it. We had uh, similar interests, at least with regard to like melodic hardcore and melodic punk rock that we knew, um, some rock and roll at the time. Uh, and um, we didn't really have a, a strong plan for how to make it happen, but he was in his old um, studio in Brighton uh days. and uh at the same time since I, since nothing was really getting off the ground too quickly uh i i had reached out to errol shepherd who had recently left roadsaw and talked with him about forming a band so he and bob maloney and i um who's bob maloney's now in um uh worshiper um and bob maloney also did he played bass when only the witness uh, went over for our last show in uh, eindhoven um in 2009 um but so it was me bob Moni, and daryl we formed what eventually would become uh milligram but neither band had a drummer at the time so i had actually been approached by um uh, warner brothers uh for you know to, to see whether or not it was going to be possible to get me out of my contract with century media um, so that was sort of percolating, and basically they said, you know, you, you tell you tell us which band you want to be on Warner Brothers, uh, uh, and and Milltown got a drummer first, oh, so, wow. or a consistent drummer. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, around that same time, uh, Aaron Hydrahead had reached out. Aaron Turner, uh, he had reached out to say, hey, would you be interested in, in putting out an EP on Hydrahead? And I was like are you kidding me? I love your label. It's really cool. I think, uh, the Milltown EP ended up being number nine on his label, but he had already put out a bunch of really cool stuff. And, um, it, you know, the, the, I wasn't quite sure what would come of those songs, but we, um, get just getting into a basement, you know, recording uh, quickly because Brian's gear was all set up. We ended up having that EP come out first. So Milltown, um, had a little bit more momentum. Um, there were a bunch of milligram songs that were written, but not quite fleshed out because we, we couldn't find a consistent drummer. Um, after, right after Milton broke up, we, I immediately reformed milligram and we put up a couple of records with, with, uh, Zeph on drums. Um, Zeph Courtney from Stompbox. Yeah. You, you have another good band from around here. Yeah. Uh, Stompbox. Well, formerly, yeah. uh, built spear. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was their original name. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, which was always strange to me because I, I knew Blitzspear and I was like wait what's going on here? <laughs> exactly. but uh, <laughs> but yeah it's um it, it, it was kind of a strange uh, um, group of people to be playing music together because uh, Brian and Matt were in Ashes and I don't think Motown sounds anything like Ashes but you know, they had started writing songs and they were pretty melodic songs um, they had a female vocalist so it was not the same dynamic for them at all but the, but the the songwriting was they had already started thinking about writing cool songs. So, um, yeah, Jay and Rob, uh, ended up joining and it, it worked out well as far as like writing a bunch of songs that we were happy about and that, that uh, came together very quickly. Um, I had a bunch of ideas already cause, of, cause I had been thinking about stuff for the next, whatever, whatever was supposed to be the next witness record. 
And um, although it wasn't nearly as aggressive, I, I really needed to take a break from that, that like tough guy scene that uh, Witness was, you know, kind of refugees from because like, you know, I just wanted to, to play music and wanted to enjoy it. And um, Boston at the time was, was way too engaged with like just, uh, just fighting for, you know, just fighting to music. So Milltown was a, was a really logical progression for me. Milligram would have also been because that was more like straight up rock and roll. Um, we, we were more influenced by like mainliner and stuff, but left the Milltown stuff, you know, we, we really liked a lot of DC hardcore and the, and the melody that came from that came from that. And, uh, so we ended up doing a, uh, couple seven inches. One was with Joni from NBR. Um, and, uh, that was a split with Castor and Hike. And then we went right into the studio to record for, um, Warner Brothers and we recorded 18 songs. It, it never came out because basically the, there was a, a, a coup within the record label where there was eating and our project was sabotaged. So um, this is in, in words the guy who signed us. Um, so that didn't come out, and now that's sitting in a vault somewhere. Um, and uh, I don't know if it'll ever come out. But we never got to really fully mix it either. Um, one interesting thing there, um, we recorded in the same uh, studio where they recorded Eye Against Eye. Um, and it's a, a place, uh, a long farm where there was a stage built in the barn where the Rolling Stones were, uh, practiced for the tattoo, tattoo U record. Um, that was around the same time that the Rolling Stones played in Worcester at some Morgan's Cove. They, they used to have a plaque on the wall to commemorate that. But, um, and I, I, we, we stayed there. We were about, we were there for about a month and a half recording it. I stayed in the Keith Richards suite, which was really ridiculous. It was like underground, no, no windows, uh, you know, like, so he could sleep all day and wow. it was connected to the sauna. Yeah, it was connected to the sauna, connected to the, to the, to the room that had the hot tub in it. There was like a pool table and whatever. We played video games all the time. And, uh, it was a really, um, eye-opening experience, but we spent way too much money and we had initially just wanted to record with Brian. You know, the record label was not having that. They, they were like, no, nope. but one of the most ridiculous aspects of that recording session was that I think we probably spent about $16,000 one day, um, putting microphones up in the cupola at the top of the barn so that Ron St. Germain, who was the guy who recorded Eye Against Eye, could dive bomb with his plane, and we recorded the sound of his plane dive bombing the, the barn, and that made it onto the record. Wow. <laughs> but we spent too much money doing that silliness. That's crazy, man. Um, and this record right now, it's like that record just is locked away in a vault somewhere, and it's, you know. Yeah, it's... It, it's been, you know, I think we've got 10 songs rough mixed and those have made their way on the internet. So, I mean, people can still hear some of those songs. I think it says unreleased demo, you know, but it, it's just probably never going to get released. I think they, they want too much money for it. We spent too much money. Yeah. So why, why reform and do these shows? Like what's the, uh, is there, is there a game plan like with, um, with any of this stuff, this activity that you guys have going on? The main reason we had talked about it was to, to do a recording of these songs that we could officially release. Because we own all the songs, we just don't own them recording. And since Brian's been doing so well with his studio, uh, we knew we could just go in, do a quick quick version of each song, and it would sound good. It would be, be natural. And we were going to release that officially. Uh, as soon as um, some friends started hearing about that, they were like, oh, you guys have to play a show. So Nate Newton uh, from Converge came to us uh, and, and asked if we wanted to play this, you know, these cave-in benefit shows for the cave-in um, uh these two shows at the Sinclair and we were like, yeah, you kidding me? That'd be, that'd be amazing. So, um, hopefully, 
we're, we're, we're not going to be uh, nearly as great as Caven is going to be, but we'll, we'll play those songs and we'll play them well and we're going to be you know, psyched to play them. Um, when we got together recently to, to practice, we literally hadn't played together in 20 years. Yeah. Um, and it was cool to be able to just kind of fire up the songs and after a few songs, a lot of muscle memory kicked in and it sounded pretty good. Um, we won't be, you know, road, <laughs> road ready with the songs, obviously, because the practices have been too and far between, but uh, the songs sound good and, I, and I'm really psyched to be playing them. Cool. That's great, man. What, what are the dates of these uh, upcoming shows? Like where, where are they, where and when are they? Yes, that's the, the Sinclair in Cambridge, uh, and that is uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the uh, uh, dates are October 19th and 20th. Uh, I think they just released a, a few more tickets for each of those shows. Cool. So, yeah, if you're in the New, New England area, this will be up prior to that show, so hopefully you can uh, check the check out the, the Milltown reunion. Now, what I'm most excited about is the Northern Skulls, and I have to thank you for sending me this incredible package contained within a hand-painted mailer basically this is like it's like uh the whole thing is like an art project and i appreciate that very much jonah sure man so what's what's the story with the northern skulls man it's it's um yeah i i I don't know how to describe it really except it came together pretty quickly um and it's been really fun to play with these guys uh the drummer is Mike from Scratch. Okay. The bass player is Glenn Stilfen from Scratch and uh, from Gangrene. Um, I've been wanting to play with Mike for a long time. He was actually my first choice to play in Milligram. And um, so when this band came together, I was psyched that he was going to be in it. And the guitar player uh, uh, is uh, Johnny Mullen, and he's been in a bunch of bands, including Five Vipers and uh, Slapes, uh, mostly like punk rock stuff. So he's got a real uh, straightforward, noisy, uh, you know, like, uh, high indie uh, guitar style that I'm wanting to play with, sing with for a long time. It's and, and uh, I had never had an opportunity. So to hear these songs the way we've uh, brought them together has been kind of pretty exciting. They came together really fast. We actually did a Milltown cover because they they had heard it and they were like, "Hey, maybe uh, we can get an EP together pretty quickly if we tried that one." And it, and it had never been released officially, so we did a uh, song uh, called Eight um, Eight Six Forty Five. And uh, we did a Who's New cover, and then we wrote four more songs, and we recorded those with uh, Benny Grotto at Mad Oak. Uh, Mad Oak is owned by Craig Riggs of Roadsaw, who we mentioned earlier. So now, I got this in the mail as a gift, but where can other people buy this record? So we've been mainly just selling it through Bandcamp, and it's been uh, sent out to a few of the shops in the New England area, but not too many. Um, I think the easiest way is through Bandcamp because that way uh, you get the, the lowest price. And uh, if you do it that way, I'll also send a hand-painted mailer to you as well. Those, uh, I think I've sent out about 100 of them so far. And um, you know, it's just the basic standard white cardboard mailer. Uh, I think I told you, Mike, the, the initial ones that I sent out, I was putting the art on the outside. But uh, on some of those, the, like the labels would fall off and they'd return to me and stuff because the, the paint would <laughs> would be easy, easily dissolved in the rain or something like that. Um, but so I started putting the art on the inside now, and I guess that's probably better because it preserves more of the artwork. It's all acrylic and, and uh, pen and ink and um, color and stuff. And also, it's a, it's a nice surprise when you open up this package and it's got this you know beautiful hand-painted interior. And uh, I was like kind of blown away by that. I was like, wow, look at this, man. It's like, you know, and, and the, the what I ended up getting reminded me of like a later Husker Du kind of album cover you know what I mean like I could see 
this being a who's good do record cover you know and i was like wow this is really nice. cool and um nice. you know I, I spun the vinyl it sounds cool i like it a lot mm-hmm. there's um you know it's a heavy rock thing going on but there's also this very faint almost like swerve driver kind of thing going on in a couple of the songs oh yeah you know what i nice. mean like yeah i like that yeah, you know, there's like this because Swerve Driver gets lumped in with like My Bloody Valentine and you know Slow Dive right. and all these bands, but they were like a little bit more of a hard rock band than those the bands I just mentioned. And Northern Skulls have a little bit of that element in their music, in my opinion. So I, I don't know. That. That's awesome. Yeah, it makes like a really cool mix of you know hard driving rock music and then this kind of like British early '90s kind of thing going on, which I, I really appreciate all that too. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been a fan of Swerve Driver. In fact, when I went on tour with uh, was Witness uh, opening for Leeway, I only had three cassettes with me. Uh, one was the uh, dub that I had gotten from a, a record uh, dude, this guy, Jem Oswald. Uh, he gave me a copy of Sky Valley before it was released, and, and it was like the, the weekend before we went on tour. So I had a copy of Sky Valley, a copy of um, Swerve Driver, Nesco um, um, Head, and then I had a, 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 one of the first shows we played over there. Uh, someone had heard that I was a Tori Amos fan, so they gave me a, a cassette with a live Tori Amos set on it. Oh, wow. Damn. <laughs> so those were the, the only three tapes I had for the whole tour, and the tour was like a month long. <laughs> so I listened, I listened to a lot of Swerve Driver. And um, I mean, that record in particular is one of my favorites, but uh, I, I definitely have been a fan of that, that driving but melodic style. Yeah, that's a great record by them, man. And you know what? Their, their newer records are actually really good, too. I don't know if you're yeah, even definitely. Yeah, it's I, I didn't even know that they were still functioning as a band. And then one day I just looked on Apple Music and there's like three albums that came out in the last five years and they're all pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, they are good and, and they're still great live. Like I I've seen them recently and it's pretty pretty awesome that they're able to maintain that level of energy and, and, and I, I like how dense the sound is. There's yeah. a lot going on. Like you said, people put them in a, in a category with My Lady Valentine, and maybe that's because of that density, the, the the sheer volume, and all the all the cool tones that are coming off that stage. Yeah, that's probably what it is. So you talked about touring Europe. I mean, with Century Media being you know, even back then a pretty big presence in Europe, I, I imagine the touring over there was pretty successful for Only Live a Witness. Yeah, we had a really a great bunch of shows. I, I don't think there were any shows that we really. Um, you know, uh, we're disappointed with, even when there was nobody there, like we played some just incredible places, you know, it was either like the location and, and the view of view from the stage was amazing. Or, uh, we played in a really cool little like cafe or something like that. And then the big shows, because we were on tour the first time with, uh, Chromax, the second time with Leeway, um, we played some, some pretty big shows, uh, especially when we would connect with like the sick of it all tour, uh, especially last time we went over there. Some of those shows were great, and um, I feel like it was, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was absolutely one of my favorite experiences in my life, uh, being able to be in a new European city every day. Um, and I had a great job at the time, so I could come back and pay my rent. It wasn't like I was, you know, uh, eating ramen uh, either before or after. I could actually, um, you know, enjoy the time while I was, that I was over there, not not dreading coming home. Um, it's not like we were making any money because the T-shirt sales were all going to the record label, but still, like, being in Prague in 93, like, talking to the kids in the street that, you know, were, were still kind of jubilant because of the the revolution that had just happened there. They're like, we are, we are 
devastatingly poor, but we are really excited about the future. And, it, and then I went back, you know, I think 2009, I was in, in Prague again, and just having that, that knowledge of the history, the firsthand knowledge of, of, of what people were saying in the street back, you know, in 93, and then seeing it again in 2009, I was like, wow, this is, it's amazing to see that kind of uh, his, history happening. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Kind of a creepy story. Um, which involves me and you and the red line, or I'm sorry, the uh, the bus that takes you from Harvard Square through Lower, Lower Alston. I remember yeah. when I used to take the bus, I think, with the same basic schedule you did uh, during the day uh, to and from work because I, I recognized you as being the singer from Only Living Witness one day, and I was like, oh, that's the guy from Only Living Witness. I remember you talking about the Chromax tour with whoever you were sitting next to, and I was like, wow, that's... Oh. That must be cool, man, to go over to Europe and tour. And I, I hope someday I can do something like that. That was that was really interesting, man. It was just funny. I, I never told you that all these years. No, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I worked I worked at Harvard, so I must have been like heading over to the libraries. Yeah, yeah. It was that that whatever that bus line that goes up Harvard Ave or Harvard Street yeah. through all through uh, Lower 60, Austin. Sixty six, I think. The sixty six. Sixty six. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and after a while, I was like, it, the, the bus was so slow that eventually I just started walking to work. <laughs> I started doing the same thing, man. Like I would take the red line, and I would just I would think about taking the bus, and then I'm like, you know what, man, I'm just gonna hoof it, and it's just a better walk, yep. and you know, because rather than just sitting on a bus all day, you know, for yeah. however long it took, you know. But yep. um, anyway, Jonah, thank you very much. Um, I'm glad we were able to, to chat about you know all yeah, this thank stuff. Thank you, man. And um and yeah, I'm looking forward. I mean, I'm I'm gonna be in Massachusetts in the next few weeks. And I'm gonna see if I can line up showing up at one of those one of those gigs. Well, let me know if you need a ticket. I could definitely get one for you. We have some extras. Uh it's a benefit, so they're they're you know, kinda of cracking down on, on the guest list, but we all bought a bunch of tickets just in case because oh, we cool. we'd have friends that we want. Yeah. So can you post it? Um it's it's easier to get you something for the twentieth, which is the Sunday show. Okay. Um but yeah, if you can make it cool. If you can't, hey, we'll we'll hang out another time. That's that's totally fine. Sounds good, man. All right, dude. Yeah. Have a good day. Take care. Thank you. See you mate. Have a good one. Bye bye. That's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care.